Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben here. Welcome to episode 479 of the podcast. It's July 5th, 2023. Joining us today, a returning guest, Arno Aurelio. We're going to be talking about his brand new, recently released, available now book titled Lean Thinking in Healthcare. So for a link to that, Arno's website and more, Look for links in the show notes, or you can go to leanblog.org slash 479. As always, thanks for listening. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. We're joined today, returning guest, Arno Aurelio. He's been, uh, he was a guest in episode 403 uh, back in 2021. He's been working with lean management since 1995. That's, that's when I started um, there's a lot of parallels to our stories if you want to go back and listen to that episode 403. But he's worked for the last 15 years as a trainer, coach, and consultant um, in healthcare. He's the owner of uh, his firm, The Lean Mentor, and he works in a Belgian hospital as a lean coach. He helps people who want to learn how to improve um, healthcare. So his first book was titled Lean Thinking for Emerging Healthcare Leaders, and he has a new book coming out titled Lean Thinking in Healthcare. So we're going to be talking about that today. Arno, thank you for coming back on the podcast. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me back. Uh, it's always good to have uh, conversations with uh, colleagues, especially because since our paths are so similar without us uh, being aware of it for a long time. Uh, so, yes, yeah, thank you so much for having me back. Yeah, well, it's uh, great to talk to you again. Um, Arno's website is leanthinkinginhealthcare.com, and I'll put links in the show notes to the past episode and and the books. And um, you know, again, congratulations on uh, on on the book. So that's going to be sort of, I think, part of what how we structure the conversation here today. Um, you know, Arno, you introduced yourself and, and, and told your story last time, but you know, with, with the book, you talk about learning how to improve and. How would you summarize, without telling your whole career story, like learning how to improve, learning how to learn how to improve? Like what? Tell us about that part of your journey. Yeah. So, as an engineer, I think I got this intrinsic drive to make things better. Uh, so, and uh, as a perfectionist, I had the tendency to think that, uh, to think that things needed to be better. So maybe that accelerated uh, things a bit. And then when I started my career in automotive industry, um, I was almost confronted as a manager with the fact that uh, performance improvement uh, was your daily work. Uh, but maybe not how we think about it currently. It was... Uh, the performance needed to be what they said it needed to be. And if it wasn't, then you had some kind of conflict. And the conflict would be around maybe the, your line has stopped and then your boss wants it to run uh, and the operator wants the, her problem to be solved and to be recognized for the problem. So I learned early about improvement that um, it has a lot to do with how we treat people and how we perceive problems. Um, recently, I got a 
post on LinkedIn where somebody replied with, yeah, you shouldn't use the word problem. Yeah. Um, yeah because that, that has a ne- yeah, that has a negative connotation. And <clears throat> so I was I was taught early on that that is uh, it's maybe better not to have problems. <laughs> um, when you're in a an organization where hierarchy is the method. And what I mean by that is that uh, when your boss is telling you what to do because he's the boss, and that's the way to go about improvement or at least uh, getting things back on track, well, I perceive that as, well, oh, didn't work for me. Uh, so, um, and later on, I, uh, I became a lean consultant. And then I was handed a completely the opposite almost uh, way of going about uh, solving problems. And it was because what we did as consultants had nothing really to do with consultancy. Uh, we went to the shop floor, to the uh, mostly factories, and we were starting conversations with the operators about uh, what do you think the problems are? And what do you think caused them? And what do you think we might do about them? And then I figured out, wow, these people n- know the answer to these questions. So uh, leadership, instead of the, using the hierarchy, you can better use the hierarchy of competence. And that means that you best start your problem solving with the people who are doing the work and know the problems best. So that was my, uh, that was the first uh, like uh, transition I made. And then... Uh, after that, the more I did it, the more I find out this is not just uh, a method or a way uh, to solve problems. It's There's a system behind it. Mm-hmm. And the system consists of a set of principles. And if you use them in, uh, in, like in concert, I don't know if you can say that in English, but um, then, uh, then you get these wonderful results while making everybody happy. So all stakeholders are uh, recognized for their needs, like the customers are recognized for their needs and and your management is recognized for what they need and operators as well as uh, maybe suppliers or uh, even owners of companies, they're they're all in it equally. And um, when I found that out, of course, it was uh, a small step to finding out it had nothing to do with factories. Although I was trained in a factory and all the books I read and all the methods I learned like TPM and Lean, etc., came from factories. Um, it had to do with people who wanted to do things for other people. And um, that made uh, uh, brought me to the path of going into the office, which is a completely different environment. Um, And their problem solving is even more difficult because in the office, there is no system for performance. So like in the factory, we always knew what the quality was, how many products we made, et cetera. But when I came in HR or in uh, even in finance, what was their process and and, and, and what are their measures treat? right what yes, are they measuring what are measures on? To, yeah. yeah what are they measuring on what do how do we know they're they're doing the right things etc so we developed as a 
all kind of tools to visualize problems in an offer setting. And then, of course, uh, the, like most people uh, will uh, experience, there's enormous amounts of waste in the office, way more than in factories. And this is because in factories, at least you can see when there's waste. You can see piles of stuff, or you can see a bin with rejected products. But in the office, there's no way of knowing whether it's excellent or not, and whether it's productive or not. Um, and from the office, it became easier uh, to maybe help organizations who had nothing to do with um, with production, or at least not in the factory sense of the word. Um, and because I, uh, at the time, I had I have uh, three sons, so I uh, visited the hospital from time to time. So I got this personal experience uh, of hospitals, and I knew about a system to improve problems. And then I found that these hospitals, it looked like they didn't have that system. But it appeared that they had a lot of problems, at least in my eyes. And I think that's that's when I took the next step in um, process improvement, like focusing on a sector where I felt the need is high. There's uh, maybe a lack of awareness of the fact that these problems are there and that they can be solved. So I, I was compelled maybe even to uh, change my uh, career focus. And uh, from that time, I... Uh, I made it my mission to build what I called at the time world class healthcare, and um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's that, so improvement became uh, from uh, doing things to solve problems in a factory, being my philosophy of how I think we should go about uh, making the world better, uh, yeah. and in my case, hospitals or. Healthcare institutions. Yeah. I mean, in, in hospitals, in a lot of ways, you can see the waste very clearly the way you might see waste in a factory. You can see patients literally waiting um, for care. You can see the physical motion of the people doing work and, and the waste that's driving, uh, you know, wasted motion that delays patient care and leads to the extra waiting time. Um, and then, like in an office setting, a lot of the waste in healthcare then is somewhat hidden because of it's it's more administrative in nature. I was wondering if you, you could tell us a little bit more about that and, you know, helping people see the waste and then yeah. the leap. Sometimes people can see the waste, but they think the problem isn't solvable. Like how, yeah, exactly. how do you help, how do you help they're, they're, through that? Yeah, that's a good. Uh, I recognize both. So. Um, as a patient or following the patients, it's easy to see waste. But it doesn't mean that the caretakers know how to see waste because their eyes are not on the patient flow. Their eyes are doing their work. And because they're forced to do their individual work extremely efficient, and whether that's truly efficient or not, we can talk about that later. But um, so it, there's a lot of, um, I think you could call that resource focus and resource efficiency. So we need as, a, as a least amount of doctors and nurses 
to do the job as we can uh, can get away with sometimes maybe even. And uh, but what we forget, or at least what I see, is that if you would uh, make a detailed analysis of what a nurse or a physician is doing throughout the day, and detailed, I mean, let's say every five minutes. Um, my, I found that uh, if you would then categorize that work in three buckets, and one bucket is uh, doing work that is actually needed to help patients, uh, that could be work that is uh, necessary under current conditions. That's may maybe it's uh, you need to do it by law, or maybe the health insurance company requires you to do some registration, or, or all those kind of things. And then there's a bucket waste. And waste means that you're walking about or you're searching for things, or maybe you have to correct something because uh, it uh, didn't go uh, well the first time. And then it's interestingly, I found that it's one third, one third, one third. Yeah. yeah. So that means that, uh, uh, so my, uh, my mission could be, uh, I think that for healthcare, we could say we can double productivity mm -hmm. without hiring anybody. And without working twice as hard. And without working twice as hard. Yes, exactly. So because if you would cut the necessary, but, uh, the necessary under current conditions, but not adding value time in half, and you would cut waste in half, then still you have time to do those things because I don't think we help anybody to say that it needs to be perfect because there's always waste and there's always things to do because the legislators want us to. Um, I mean, I have, an, uh, I have a business of my own. I need to uh, uh, tell the IRS about my uh, value added tax, etc. So yes, it's always like that, but it, need, it doesn't need to be as much as it is currently. So within these silos of so-called resource efficiency, there is still, we can still do twice as much with way less energy because what people often, why nurses and doctors have to work so hard is because this administrative work and this wasteful work, your body knows when he does that. So it's way more frustrating. It costs way more energy. If you're if you're working with a patient and you do what you love, this will give you energy. So it will be very way more easier if you could do that all day instead of uh, filling in forms, etc. Yeah. Well, that that there's a phrase for those who are just listening to the audio podcast. They won't see the video. Um, there's a, a flip chart behind Arno, and there's a phrase there that seems to encapsulate what you're talking about there and an important goal for healthcare, more time for better healthcare. You know, we, we look at that theme, um, releasing time to care, I think was a, a pro, the name of a program uh, in, in the NHS England at one point. Um, there's another similar program, transforming care at the bedside, but you know, I think that phrase, releasing time to care, more time for better health care, that's a very important goal. It's a very positive framing. And, you know, thinking back to the history, I think this goes back 
at least 15 years ago. I think that program in NHS England was initially called the Productive Ward, and the people in the wards felt insulted. And let, you know, it's not a matter of blaming the ward for being unproductive. They're doing the best they can. They're working too hard. So I, I think a phrase like releasing time to care, you know, it's a, that's, that's that a better, better word. Yes. Yes. It's interesting that uh, the, the number one, uh, one most important uh, goal for healthcare, increasing productivity uh, is one that has so much negative connotation because that it was very difficult to talk about productivity. Whereas if you would call productivity is to me, it's just the amount of value-added work you do compared to the resources you put in. So, but um, because productivity is for so long measured by how much time do you work, uh, people think, yeah, I work all day and I work overtime, so I can't be more productive. Right. And that's, uh, yeah, that's a difficult uh, thing well, to do. Yeah. And there's a, there's a lesson going back to Taiichi Ono, you know, motion does not equal value or being, you know, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and people conflate the two and yeah, I mean, these are dirty words you mentioned earlier, problem and productivity, um, because, you know, there, there's, there's quite often a lot of blaming and shaming associated with those words where in some cultures, like a Toyota culture, the word problem is pretty neutral. Like the problem exists. It's like yeah. pointing to uh, a wrench. It exists. Let's yeah. let's do something about it. Yeah. We, exactly. we don't have the, the same emotional um, stress that's created. Yeah. Yeah. They might even think that's a positive word because no problem is a problem is what Taichi Ono said. Right. And right. I think that's true. If you If you don't know what your problems are, how are you going to improve? Mm-hmm. So, but then uh, that can only be true if you get the help you need to actually solve the problems, because otherwise you could just get frustrated. I mean, um, sometimes uh, we do these exercises to have people see the waste in their department, and sometimes they make very long lists, and that's not necessarily what makes them happy, because um, uh, some people like me, they I can't unsee it. So once I saw it, then I, yeah, I keep, it will be on my focus. So, yeah. And what's interesting about more time for better healthcare is also that there's a lot of research, um, at least in the Netherlands, I'm not sure if it's international research, but it could be, that if a family physician or general practitioner uh, would spend 15 minutes with a patient instead of 10, it saves a huge amount of people sending uh, be sent to the hospital because then you can get a true anamnese and a good true diagnosis of what's going on with this person, what's his uh, context, uh, what's happening at home. And then uh, that normally is enough to find out uh, what can be done without uh, look at, uh, having a, physi- uh, an, uh, a specialist look at it. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that sounds like another example of the difference between resource efficiency and system effectiveness or yeah, system exactly, yeah. efficiency. Yeah. The American system, 
um, is so disjointed, it's difficult to think systemically. Um, That might be easier in some other settings. But, you know, it's a bit of a recap, not to, you know, um, dive into this too much. But my, my understanding of the Dutch system is that it's more similar to the U.S. system than it would be to the NHS England system, that you have private insurers that are nonprofit and private yeah. healthcare delivery organizations. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, yeah but we haven't. Um, so um, so what's, what's similar is we use uh, the health insurance companies as the payers. And um, then we have the patients who pay a premium to the healthcare insurance uh, organization and they uh, make contracts with the hospitals. And then these hospitals, they report how much care they're providing and then they get paid. At least so that's how it should work. Um, so we, but these health insurance are all non-profit. So we don't have health insurance who represent uh, a business. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I, I think you have in some cases. People get insurance independently as opposed to being an employer or benefits, right? Yes, it's a it's a uh, it's a private, uh, and um, your um, uh, and everybody has insurance in the Netherlands. You're even uh, obliged by law to have an insurance uh, to have health insurance, and then there's there's a basic. Uh, package which is defined by the government and they say okay these treatments and these kind of help is uh, um, compensated and um, the uh, and you can have additional uh, packages if you want to have extra but these are by choice so um, and what um, so the good part of and what, what but what is very different in the Netherlands is we have a very solid uh, first line we call it the, so the family physicians or the the general practitioners um, these are um, um, at no cost so anybody can go anywhere they don't have to pay a, a contribution of some kind uh, and. I think that it's about 95% of the curative care is done by these family physicians. And only in 5% of the cases, people are uh, sent to the hospital. So this is where where our system is fairly cheap or lower cost than uh, particularly in the United States. Yeah, And then is there a capacity shortage at some point or is is the system designed in a way where more physicians are encouraged to become general practitioners or, or primary care so that you can go get that care without waiting a long time for appointments no 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 so the the, the problem is that uh, um, this um, these health insurers they make contracts with all care providers and they try to squeeze all of them so and uh, this is where it's uh, the system is going wrong because um, the health insurance companies are saying they they select on quality and cost, but because they are health insurance, they can't judge quality. So what they do is they make all these rules and all these regulation, all this administration, so all this bureaucracy, 
so care providers can prove that they uh, they do the right things, that the, their their invoices are legitimate, etc. But if you ask somebody who's doing the work to uh, be accountable for that work to somebody who doesn't understand the work, uh, that means that um, it's all built on distrust. And that means that the bureaucracy is always increasing because it's never enough. There's always a reason why they think it's not good enough or we're not sure. Or um, So I think uh, this is the, the this is the biggest problem. And then um, and then we have like uh, what what we tend to call staff shortages. So we have a lot of uh, it's very difficult to find enough nurses, especially. And in some disciplines, uh, it goes for doctors like family physicians. Um, but um, yeah, hiring extra uh, when they're not there, yeah, that's very difficult. So that costs a lot of money. Um, and what we also see is that because the general vision is we have staff shortages, everybody is solving that problem. And uh, my, uh, I always tend to say staff shortages are not a problem. They are a solution disguised as a problem. Or it's a symptom of, because, of, of the yeah, yeah, but because yeah. because the, the the because the solution is more staff. Yeah, and for those so who are just a, listening, Arno did the finger quotes around quote unquote oh, yeah, staff oh, yeah, yeah. shortages. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean. So yeah, and and because it's. Um, it's actually so they they feel like they do not have enough staff and then they shout to their managers we need more nurses etc and then uh, there's all these vacancies so people start to believing oh there's so many vacancies we can't fill them we have staff shortages but there's nobody who says okay why do you think you have not enough nurses and because that question would say, well, I, I, I'm working my ass off and I'm so busy and uh, this patient didn't get her treatment and that one is, uh, and we have this waiting list, et cetera. So that uh, we can reframe the problem to, we can't treat, ha give all patients what they need. If we would frame the problem as we can't give all the patients what, we, what they need, then you do two things. First, you, um, it's about what they need. So you have to understand, is everything you're doing, is it actually what they need? Or are you doing things that they don't need? The, today we had a, a very interesting uh, article in the newspaper about a hospital that's uh, uh, having patients and, uh, and family members of elderly people uh, discuss whether they want uh, a hip uh operation because uh, all the elderly people they have a lot, a lot of times they fall and when they fall they tend to uh, break their hip but if they're old uh, it's uh, it appears that many of them when you ask them they have very different priorities than uh, being mobile again because often it's not possible anymore so they don't want pain and they want a high quality of life so from they went from 1% to 13% of the people avoiding an operation 
and just taking palliative care. So, and so that would be so do what they need and uh, compare the work we do to what patients need, and um, and then we have uh, we can and we have the focus on these on helping patients. So the primary task is to have enough capacity to do what patients need. And then we can ask, okay, where does our capacity go? And then we come back to this circle with this three parts, like a pie, where we spend only one third of our time on what patients need. And then we know, oh, we don't have staff shortages. The problem is we the, or the cause of us not doing what patients need is we let them do the wrong things. If we would have them just do what patients need and nothing else, we have enough patients and enough surgeons and enough mm-hmm. physicians. Yeah. So, so you know, Arno, you talk about the need for productivity improvement, and 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 that you know that relates to cost and efficiency and other factors. You know, on, on the cover of your book, Lean Thinking in Healthcare, there's there's four phrases that seem to maybe represent um, true north. So let, let me ask that as a question. Do these things represent true north to you or the hospital you're working with? Those those words and phrases are uh, safe, compassionate, zero waste, no struggle. Is that, is that your true north? Yes. And of course, it's a summary because uh, what would be in the middle of that is it would comprise the right care at the right time at the right place for the right patient. But that's that's the content of the work. And what I see in healthcare is that there's an unbelievable passion and uh, scientific curiosity and every all the energy in healthcare, if it uh, comes to doctors and nurses, is about the content of the work. Uh, but we do all these things around them or they have all these processes and systems around them that fail them on the other aspects. So that's why I selected these four words because I think, well, safe, you can't go around it. If it's not safe, then you might don't want to do it at all. And then compassionate because um, compassionate means that you're willing to take action to actually help somebody. I had a great, uh, um, I don't know, it was a graphic this week on LinkedIn by somebody who made the difference of pitying, sympathy, empathy, and and, uh, compassion. And then it was in gradations to how much you care about the other person and how much you're willing to help them or take action to help them. So that's where the compassion comes from. And the interesting thing with the word compassion is you can uh, maybe uh, put uh, the word, if you take away the word calm, then you get passionate. <laughs> right. And I think that's, um, that's what you want from your uh, nurses and physicians and for everybody around them, that uh, they're passionate about the work they do, about the patients. And uh, what... Uh, people tend to forget is that uh, passion 
comes from, of course, from the, um, I think it was the, the bearing of the cross of uh, Jesus. And it has to do with um, being willing to suffer to get to your goal. So when somebody says he's passionate about this, about, about something, they often mean, or especially when coaches on LinkedIn say it, they often mean, I, uh, I like this work. But passion is not about liking the work. It's about willing to suffer to get to your end goal. If you want to, if you want to see passion, go watch cycling. Hmm. I don't know if you ever watched the Tour de France or something. Just but, a little bit, yeah. But these these people, they're six hours on their bike, so that at the end they can be one second faster than anybody else. <laughs> yeah. So. It has not, and maybe they like cycling, but I'm sure you don't like it if you're six weeks, six hours on your bike on an average of 40 kilometers an hour. So that's that's also what I have in my head, and that um, and that uh, is because um, when you analyze, uh, maybe to take a step back to uh, where we started with improvement, the Japanese have this word kaizen, and you know it says, uh, very well mm-hmm. yeah. since the name of your. Uh, company uh, Kinexus is inspired from it i guess it is partly uh, yeah so and uh, if you look at the the characters of kai and zen you see uh, a whip mm. somebody whipping and you see uh, an altar with a sheep and it's and whipping it, yourself yeah, not whipping yeah it is whipping else. yourself so right. it means that means that continuous improvement means self discipline and sacrifice. So, um, so, and then, so it's not just the true north, but it is also uh, the emotions and the the human um, endeavor we need to get to that point. That's where I think uh, then the book is about. So, the, so the, on the on the front of the book it says these four things, which where we want to end up. We want it to be safe. We want it to be compassionate. We want zero waste and we want no struggle. But to get there, we need, well, we need this engine of willingness to uh, suffer, to make it better for other people. And this is where maybe that's why lean is so difficult, I guess. I, I can see two sides of that. Of You know, one, I mean, sure, you know, the need to put the effort into improvement is is important. And there's bound to be struggle in our attempts to improve. But when you think of, you know, the passion that healthcare providers have, what word would we use? We we could say it's a calling, that they have a mission, that they they start their career with enthusiasm, but then they have then they end up suffering too much because of the waste, because of some of the different dynamics. People get worn down or burned out or 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 worse. And, and I think that's a big part of what we need to try to help fix in, in, yeah, in exactly. healthcare. And then that leads to staff shortages when people um say, I can't take it anymore, and they, yeah, they burn out or, or yeah. they quit. Or, you know, I think we need to yes. kind of figure out how to break some of those cycles and and yeah, and exactly. engage people in trying to help fix that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they have. Uh, it's it's hard enough to help fragile people and to sometimes fail. I mean, uh, 
and and not uh, nothing you can do about it. If I mean, uh, people die and people get hurt in ways that we can no longer fix them. So yeah, I think that's uh, that's fair to say. So it, we need to have them use this passion for their patients and not to uh, work through the mud that we put on them. Right. And, you know, I think there's, maybe we can talk a little bit more about, you know, one element of Kaizen is engaging everybody in improvement every day. And I know that's something you focus on in in the book. Um, You know, I think one thing that makes it difficult to translate some of this from Toyota, not the language, but just from one environment to another, is I think a lot of the context of Kaizen is built on top of a well-designed system. Like Toyota people will talk about the obligation of leaders to create a system in which people can succeed. Dr. Deming would talk about the role of executives in owning the system. And I, you know, I think sometimes you know, I, while, while sure, the ideal is to engage everyone in improvement, I think sometimes I, I see or hear executives think that all they have to do is empower the frontline staff. And like, well, they could be, they can tweak the existing system and there can be benefit to that. But when and how do you say, we need to really redesign the system and that, that has to involve more than the frontline staff? So you were asking me about this, uh, yeah, how, when should we uh, go about changing the system instead of uh, modeling on the shop floor to maybe uh, increase it a bit, a little bit. Um, well, I would say as an engineer, uh, when I first met the healthcare system, I was already thinking we should change the system. Um, the the current system is perfectly designed for the current results, um, and uh, that's why I, um, with uh, this engineering mindset. I made the introduction a chapter of the of the book is about what I see in the current system that's keeping us from actually improving healthcare. And that has to do with the silos. We already talked about it a bit, uh, that, that everybody is doing his or her work within his or her department and discipline. Um, and because um we uh we did science and improvement processes all to increase the content of the work but we did hardly nothing to change the system that is supporting that work so i would say we need to completely redesign uh healthcare where the most important thing is that we uh look at the needs of the patients and we look at what type of processes and models we need to help them and stop putting all those models in one system which we currently have Um, because the the way we get paid is the same all throughout whereas the way we provide care could be very different there's a great book about it. It's called The Innovator's Prescription by Clay Christensen. 
and he made some points about uh, the difference between diagnosis and standardized treatments and maybe treatments for illnesses we don't know much about or what, what to do with chronically ill. Should we have them keep coming to the hospital or is it maybe better that we have some system that they can have at home, those kind of things. So at the system level, I think there's a, there's a lot to be done. But the problem is you can only do that if you understand how to change systems. And for this, you need to learn to change small systems first. So if we could um, help people on a smaller scale learn how to change in a multidisciplinary way and teach leaders how to manage multidisciplinary cooperation and improvement, then this will give us the skills and the competencies and maybe the way of thinking we need to uh, solve ever larger problems. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like get, there, there's that human tendency to want to jump to solutions and we can learn on a small scale, maybe how that doesn't work, but there are at a larger system level, um, again, that, that th those efforts to jump to solutions if, if we don't we fully understand the problem. I mean, you know, the, the U.S. for you know decades has thrown around this phrase "healthcare reform," and that means different things to different people. Um, are there efforts to try to redesign the system in the Netherlands or, or Belgium that you're aware of? Is that, is that kind of a, yes, a, a political the, question of well, how do we reform the system? Uh, yes, for a large part, it's a political. The interesting thing is it's not necessarily a political question, but it's made political. So what I what, what we see in healthcare is that uh, people are doing each other's work. Like I told you that the, that the health insurers are trying to uh, define and manage quality of healthcare where they don't know much about how to treat patients. And the same goes the other way around in the sense that if there's problems in healthcare, like staff shortages, everybody is looking up to the Minister of Healthcare. And uh, the problem is sometimes the, he even listens. And then he starts to devise solutions for the problems that people say are his fault. And this is where the problem is. People are thinking about who's responsible and they mean who, whose fault is this. And they start telling him, you need to fix this because this is all terrible. And then he fixes it with solutions that don't work. And then we get it. So we get this cycle. I call it the, the circle of continuous misery. <laughs> it's in my book as well. Yeah. Uh, as part of this introductory uh, chapter. And um, so, but it shouldn't be. Um, the problem is, uh, and the other problem is, we don't. Uh, really look at the current condition uh -huh. to understand it. We right. look at it as just to judge it as horrible, uh -huh. but not to understand it. So, And as long as we don't understand what we are now doing and why that is not working or why it is working in some uh, instances, like I told you about the general practitioners in the Netherlands, which is work working quite fine. So, and... So we need um, these people 
they make uh, all kind of, uh, I don't know you call it, uh, economic treaties. They, they make a long report and they say, okay, for the next year, we agree that this will, that we will do this. But it's all words. It says like, we need to cooperate more and we, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's no system or idea how. So the, the best thing for them is to have all everybody in the system just join to understand the current condition with the aim of just giving patients what they need. And uh, if they want to say with the least amount of cost, that, that will be. If you just give them what they need and nothing else, that will be the lowest cost version of your system. And, but then they have to agree that it's that they're all in it together and that they need a plan that's uh, understood from all perspectives. Because these um, health insurance companies, yes, they have, a, they have a, the obligation to pay the least amount of money for my care because that's why I pay him the premium So, uh, and I want the premium to be low. So, so we ask things from people and when they do what they're, where they're asked to, to do, then they're blamed for it. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. it's not helping. I'm not sure. Is it the same in the U.S.? That's so. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's there's something consistent in in the human condition there of reacting to symptoms, jumping to solutions, expecting other people to solve it. Um, you know, you're, you you make me think of a really helpful idea that you know Toyota people like Pascal Dennis have taught me. You know, the difference between what they would call a big vague concern and a well-defined problem statement. So you used a phrase, or we could just say something like, um, you know, a big vague concern would be something like, um, you know, our health our healthcare system sucks. Okay, well, <laughs> how specifically, how do we define that? And, and how do we define a measurable gap? Or it could be, you know, everybody hates working here and they're all leaving. Okay, well, that, that's a big vague concern. We need to define the problem. We need to understand causes. We need to understand more detail of the current condition, as as, as you're describing, and you know, I know as, as as you teach others. So, you know that that discipline problem solving process, even at a smaller scale, yet alone a bigger scale, that takes more time. But I think that's the only chance we have to actually be effective. It seems faster to jump to a solution and jump into action, and then if it's not effective, well, then we're either right back where we started or we've made things worse. Yes. And there's another thing which I almost forgot because I'm so used to it, uh, which lean thinkers are or companies like Toyota are, that we need to start to understand the direction. That's why on the front of my book is this true north, because we often forget about it. And if you don't have a true north, then you automatically get some vague uh, problem statement. Um, whereas if you know that it need to be a gap between something where you want to be or need to be and what you currently have, then you will start seeing and then uh, the clutter will disappear as well. Because I, I see in the Netherlands uh, and, and some examples I saw elsewhere that we tend in healthcare and maybe it's human, uh, the human condition as well as like you said, but 
we we improve away from something. So we try to improve away from the current situation, which we don't like. Uh, but if everybody is moving away in a different direction, uh, then the then we the, the the status quo remains. Right. Or what? So we we need to understand what we what we're moving to. What's the yeah, ideal? Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. that's an important part of the problem solving process to find the ideal state. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. And I think that we should st- learn to start there. Mm. So yeah, that's that's um, that's a great point. Um, not just what are we moving from, but what are we moving to? Yeah. Um, so that's uh, yeah. So one one other thing I wanted to ask you, and and again, we're joined by Arno Aurelio. His new book is Lean Thinking in in Healthcare. You know, we we talk about the need to look at our work, to understand the current state and, 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 and to make things better. You know, you, you also talk about and write about learning from the best. So where, what's, what's the right role for that? Does that mean learning from the best hospitals or the best, whatever? Um, well, learning from the best, um, uh, luckily it's not um, the first chapter is chapter 10, I think. So it's somewhere uh, at the end of the book, and that's because learning from other people. I think in healthcare they really try to, and they like to, uh, but it has two problems. That first of all, they uh, they tend to start learning from other people by brainstorm or by visiting somebody before they understand their own situation and their own problem, and they haven't yet decided where they want to go. And that means that if you then go look at somebody else, you automatically will refute like almost everything you see because it won't work where you're at for all kinds of reasons. So they're jumping to solutions without being aware of it. They're jumping to the solutions of the other person. And then, of course, even if they like them, it's very difficult to implement them because they have no uh, connection to their their own problems. Right. They're trying to copy. So, yeah. And, yes. and then the other thing is they tend to go learn from the content of the work. So they go to learn from other, let's say I'm a surgeon, I'm going to learn from other surgeons. I mean, surgeons go to surgeon conferences. Um which uh, narrows down the amount of possible solutions extremely because then somebody who has the same job as you has already need to have the same problem, which they assume they do. And then if he solved it, I can solve it as well. And if somebody is not a surgeon, maybe he solved it, but it can't be for me because he's not a surgeon. Um, So if you learn... I feel that if you learn from the best, uh, it's then learn from people who know how to solve problems or how to lead, because that's universal. So it's way more better. It's way better to invest in, uh, yeah, what you call meta skills, new ways to solve your problems, and. Or if you can't find a good solution, I mean, um, if you understand your problem, then ask yourself, who solved this problem already? And then 
be blind for what kind of work they do. I mean, if you want to know how to safely uh, change some information at the other end of the world, and then it will be automatically the same at this end of the world without everybody, anybody can have access, go to a bank. <laughs> so if you want to design a EHR, ask banks how they make sure that your privacy and your bank account are guaranteed despite the fact that you go to Singapore to uh, get cash out of the machine. I mean, that, that I think that it was already in the 90s or maybe the end of the 80s that we were, we were able to do this automatically world around. And in healthcare, we're still, uh, I think we have last year, we, uh, we eliminated the fax machines from the hospital. So, wow. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> That's so, yeah. So, so learning from the best, preferably learn from their ability to solve problems and from their leadership. And um, the best way to learn is don't go to another hospital. Because the problem with that is that you see all their solutions and you understand them. I, I, um, I used to organize uh, study missions to the US actually. And we went to Seattle and um, with, I think, about 40 uh, people from healthcare. And the, especially the physicians, they went on the tour because we were going to visit hospitals like at Virginia Mason. But where, where they learned the most was at Boeing because they didn't have that frame of reverence. So they were... Completely, it's like going on a holiday. If you go to a new country, you can't be otherwise other than open to all the new experiences because you you don't have a reference. So they learned at Boeing that uh, maybe uh, building an airplane in ten days and then have the client fly it themselves from your factory to the other side of the world while you have put 300,000 different uh, pieces together to get this plane, this might be actually also quite complex. And if they can standardize their processes and they, they are able to manage quality and they are able to do it in a safe way and make, make the plane flow, yeah, then why can't a hospital? Yeah. So that, that's where they learn the most. Yeah. So, in a sense, from the best in the best in doing this extremely logistically complex process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for for sharing that, Arno. You know, thought provoking and and really insightful. So, um, we want to thank you for being here again today. Our, our guest has been Arno Aurelio. Um, his website, and, and again, there will be links in the show notes here. Lean Thinking in Healthcare. Com and the new book Lean Thinking in Healthcare. Uh, congratulations on uh, getting that getting that published and released. It's very exciting. So um, thank you. I hope it, people will check it out, and I hope it's uh, well received. And uh, needless to say, for those who are listening, uh, the, the the book is in English. So yeah. Yeah. so, and if you by accident are uh, Dutch speaking, 
the book is in Dutch as well because I originally wrote it in Dutch and now translated it myself. So, yeah. well, I hope yeah. people again hope people will go uh, check it out. So Arno, thank you. It's great to talk to you again, and uh, let's let's do this again sometime. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.